0: In Revelation chapter 17 we enter into a new vision cycle which is the fifth of seven cycles of judgment which form the core of the book of Revelation. This fifth cycle runs from chapter 17 verse 1 to chapter 19 and verse 10 and it depicts God's judgment upon Babylon which is the emblematic world city, that city which represents all other worldly cities in all times and in all places. Babylon's judgment was first referenced back in chapter 14 and verse 8, where we read that another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It was mentioned again at the end of the last chapter, 16 and verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. But now, beginning in Revelation chapter 17, the judgment of Babylon is described in vivid yet symbolic detail. If the beast of Revelation stands as a symbol for the evil, satanically empowered state which makes war on and persecutes the saints of God, as we've seen in chapter 11 and verse 7 and chapter 13 and verse 7, then Babylon stands as a symbol for the godless and immoral and idolatrous culture which seduces the saints of God. In John's day, the beast was the Roman state, and Babylon, the Roman culture. Both characters will play a major role in today's passage. But before we begin, I want to ask the question, why Babylon? Why is Babylon chosen as a symbol for the worldly city? What is it about Babylon that makes it a fitting symbol for the world's cultural and commercial and religious system. Well, I thought I would begin this morning by giving you a brief history of Babylon. The story begins back in Genesis chapter 11, where we read in verses 1 and 2, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now these were the generations after the flood when the descendants of Noah were repopulating and filling the earth. The plain of Shinar refers to that ancient land of Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in modern day Iraq, the cradle of human civilization and culture. It was in the plain of Shinar that mankind built a city which would come to stand for all the cities of the world. A city known as Babylon. Verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 11. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for, order, or for mortar. When they said, come, Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now this was the dawn of the Bronze Age when human civilization was flourishing as rapid increases in technology and architecture and metalwork and language and writing allowed for for swift and expansive growth of societies. It seemed at this point in human history that nothing was impossible for man to achieve, not unlike today. And it was in this cultural milieu that the sin of man burst forth in a spectacular rebellion against the sovereign creator, as it had back in the Garden of Eden. In fact, it is the same sin. You can be like God. It was now being replayed in the generations after Noah. In other words, the flood and the worldwide destruction that it brought did nothing to erase the irresistible, depraved impulse that resides within the heart of man. Evidently, something greater than floodwaters is needed to wash away the sins of the world. Two great sins are evident in the words of the people here in Genesis 11. Number one, they desired to build a city lest they be dispersed over the face of the earth. They desired to build a city in direct rebellion against the mandate that God had given the descendants of Noah in Genesis 9-1 when He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Disseminate yourselves over the face of the earth of the earth and they said no we will gather together into one location secondly they desired to build a tower this would be a ziggurat into the heavens in order to make a name for themselves they desired to build a monument to their own glory and ingenuity so as it was in the beginning so it is today they traded the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal man. And this city became a cultural, economic, and religious capital. It was the very first Babylon. And the Lord was not pleased. Verse 5 of Genesis 11 And the Lord came down to see their city and their tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. A godless people with a unified language in a unified location would be capable of unspeakable iniquity. And so the Lord slowed the corruption of man by confounding their language. And dispersing them over the face of the earth. But as we know from history and from Scripture, in every place that they settled in the four corners of the earth, in every corner of the globe, they brought with them that impulse to build a city, a place of culture, a place of commerce, and to build a temple, a monument to the glory of man and to the gods which men create. That is why Babylon stands for the world city. So whether it is literal Babylon, which stood on the very plain of Shinar in the middle of the first millennium B.C., or whether it's Egypt or Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, or Susa, the seat of the Persian Empire, or Rome, or London, or Beijing, or Washington, D.C., or New York City. Wherever you find on this earth, a center of civilization and culture and commerce, combined with monuments to the glory of man, you find Babylon. So before we begin Revelation chapter 17, let me read you these words of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when he was walking upon the roof of his palace and overlooking the famed city with its Hanging Gardens, as recorded in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. Listen to the spirit of Babylon emerge from the lips of its king. Is not this Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That's the spirit of Babylon and it can be found in every city of the earth. Revelation chapter 17 can be easily divided into three sections. The first, verses one to six, provides a portrait of Babylon, the great, pictured as a tawdry prostitute riding atop a scarlet beast. The second section runs from verses seven to 14, and it describes the beast on which the prostitute sits. And then third, verse 15, verses 15 to 18, describes. Babylon's destruction, rather surprisingly, at the hands of the beast. We will cover each section in turn and then we'll step back and look at the application which the Lord would have us to see. So we look first at the portrait of Babylon, pictured in Revelation as a great prostitute and standing as a symbol for the godless, immoral, and idolatrous culture which seduces the saints of God. Read with me in verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Three items I want to point out from this description of Babylon. The first has to do with a theme that is emerging, and the second and third are of a more practical nature. Why is it, this is the question I want to ask, why is it that Babylon is pictured as a prostitute? Well, it is because John is setting her up as a counterfeit bride. She is a grotesque forgery of the pure and beautiful bride that we will see in a couple of chapters, who is the church now, we've already seen this theme of counterfeiting emerging in the book of Revelation, as in chapters 12 and 13, where we saw that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet were established as a counterfeit trinity. The dragon counterfeiting the father, the beast counterfeiting the son, the false prophet counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. Now we find that same thematic element at play, so Here's what he's doing. Just as the followers of the Lamb comprise a pure and holy bride, so do the followers of the beast comprise an impure and unholy prostitute. Let me show you what I mean, and I'll show you the the comparison and contrast that John is setting up in chapter 17 to 21. First, John sees the prostitute in the wilderness. Verse 3 of chapter 17. Just as John saw the woman, who is the church, in the wilderness in chapter 12 and verse 6. Second, one of the seven angels who has the seven bowls introduces John to this vision of Babylon by saying this. 17 verse 1. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Well, when you turn over to chapter 21, you find... One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, possibly the same angel who introduces John to the glorified church in exactly the same language. 21 and verse 9 Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The prostitute is said to be Babylon, chapter 17 and verse 18, the great city. Okay, so first she's a prostitute and then she's a city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, you get to chapter 21, you find that the bride of Christ is likewise shown as a city. Chapter 21 and verse 2 And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And when the angel tells John that he will show him the bride, the wife of the Lamb, what does he show him? He shows him a city. 21.10 2110, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Chapter 17 and verse 4: The prostitute is adorned with purple and scarlet and with gold and jewels and pearls. Just like the new Jerusalem, who is the bride of Christ, is adorned in bright linen, fine and pure, and with precious jewels. Chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. The prostitute is clothed in scarlet because she is clothed in sin. The bride of Christ is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. Chapter 19 and verse 8. Because she's clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Babylon is presented as the mother of prostitutes. 17.5 Begetting children who are full of iniquity while the church is presented in chapter 12, verse 17, as the mother of children who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. They're both mothers producing very different offspring. The prostitute holds in her hand a golden cup, 17.4, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immoralities. And from this cup she offers to all the world a drink. Just like the bride cries out to the nations in 22 and verse 17 to come, come to the waters of life and drink freely, without cost, without price. Finally, the beast ends up hating, undressing, and ultimately devouring his bride who is the prostitute in verse 16. But the lamb loves and clothes and dwells forever with his bride who is the church. So if you wonder as you're reading through Revelation 17, what's John doing? What does all this symbolism mean? It's a counterfeit of all of the symbolism that he's going to apply to the church who is a bride of Christ. And he's going to bring the prostitute Babylon into stark contrast with the church, the bride. Therefore, the church, the followers of the lamb and their purity is held in stark contrast to Babylon, the followers of the beast and their abominations and iniquities. The followers of the beast will fall with Babylon. The followers of the lamb will dwell in the new heavens and new earth with Christ in everlasting joy. So that's the first thing. It's a theme that John is developing that he will carry from chapter 17 on to the very end of the book. Second, and more practically, notice that she wields the power of seduction. In verse 2, John says that both the kings of the earth and all the dwellers on the earth have drunk from the cup of the wine of her abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Verse 4. Now remember that Babylon stands for the cultural, economic, and religious world system. Human civilization. These things hold a deep and sensuous allure to the natural man. In John's day, Babylon was the Roman culture. With its affluence, its wealth, its magnificent structures, its technological achievements, its Roman roads and Roman aqueducts, its coliseums with their gladiatorial spectacles and chariot races, its enormous and thriving temples with their pagan festivals, where all manners, uh, all manner of debauchery took place, it felt. Good to the carnal nature of man to be a citizen of Rome. One might even say that it was an intoxicating wine and that all of Rome was drunk on it. And I would tell you that America today serves the very same vintage. Wall Street makes us wealthy with fake money, Madison Avenue keeps us apprised of needs we didn't even know we had. Hollywood keeps us endlessly entertained. Beloved, we dwell in Babylon and almost no one sees her for what she actually is. A debauched and diseased harlot who is serving men and women a deadly draft of abominations and they are drinking her cup dry. But judgment is coming. Upon her and upon this culture. Swift and sure and terrible. Third, the prostitute hates the saints because they won't drink from her cup of abominations. And so she kills them. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You try to be a follower of Christ on Wall Street. Where greed reigns supreme. You don't produce fake accounts working for Wells Fargo. You don't work for Wells Fargo. See how long you last being a follower of Christ on Wall Street. Try to hold to a biblical worldview in the university and see if you are awarded tenure as a professor. You try to take a stand for Christ in the public square and see how long it is before you are scorned, ridiculed, and persecuted as an intolerant, narrow-minded, backward, backwards, homophobic, bigoted purveyor of hate. Beloved, we are the saints... And Babylon for us is American culture. And you increasingly have two choices set before you and not a third. You can drink from the harlot's golden cup, just like everyone else, or you can be marginalized, persecuted, and eventually killed. And the question this chapter prompts is which one will you choose? Which one are you choosing? When John saw the prostitute, he confesses, verse 6, that he marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The angel then provides John with another description of the beast to go with the first description that we had back in chapter 13. Look with me beginning in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not... And is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive royal authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. In Revelation, as in Daniel chapter 7, which is the foundational vision for understanding the beast of Revelation, The beast refers to the satanically empowered, persecuting state that makes war upon the saints. You can see this in 11.7 and 13.7. That John initially sees the prostitute riding upon the beast shows that throughout this age, the state and the culture will often work in tandem to enslave the people of the world and to kill the people of God. The Roman state, for instance... The Roman state enacted and enforced laws against the church and killed the saints with the power of the sword. The Roman culture, meanwhile, seduced the church with sensuality and luxury and killed them with the power of sin. The beast rules by fear. The the prostitute seduces by appealing to our fleshly lusts. But whether you die by the sword or you die by sin, whether the beast kills you or the prostitute slays you, both are exceedingly dangerous to the church. Now as before, I have three notes to make about the beast. The first regards the beast's time frame. The angel tells John, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not. And is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, there's a lot of debate as to how we're to understand much of Revelation 17. So I'll just tell you, I'm simply going to do my best to make sense of its meaning. I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. Throughout history, there have been many manifestations of the beast. Daniel in his vision of Daniel 7 saw four such manifestations Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. In fact, in Daniel's vision Rome is the last beast and it's and it's a manifestation of that fourth beast in the little horn who actually makes war upon the saints at the end of time and prevails over them until the Ancient of Days comes to rescue them and to bring judgment upon the beast and to grant to the saints the everlasting kingdom. But we know from history that the Roman Empire eventually fell in the 5th century A.D. Its power was broken and its kingdom gradually dissolved and was disseminated throughout the Western world. Now I think this may be part of the meaning behind the statement that the beast was, and is not, and is yet to come to rise from the bottomless pit. No global empire has arisen on a par with that which was seen in Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Though many have tried, none have achieved that level of worldwide domination. Now there have always... Been wicked regimes, one after another, arising over the last 2,000 years. Arising to conquer nations and to violently persecute the people of God. And those regimes are indeed manifestations of the beast. But nothing on the scope and scale and size of Rome. So the beast was, and is not, and is to come. There is coming a day when the beast's war against the Lamb and his followers will, will reach a fever pitch on a global scale. It's at this time that the beast will rise from the bottomless pit, okay, like in 11.7, to gather the nations to ga- together for the battle of Armageddon, like chapter 16, verses 12-16, to 16, as we saw last week. So Revelation 17.8 coincides with what we have seen, or what we will see rather, in Revelation 20, to 3 and 7-10, to where Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, which is symbolic of this age between the two comings of Christ, so that, 20 and verse 3, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. When he is released, we find out in 20 and verse 7 that he indeed gathers the nations, he deceives the nations, gathers them together in this one final war upon the saints. So evidently Satan also was and is not and is to come. There's a period now, we live in this period in which Satan and his beast is, in a manner of speaking, restrained in their global power to deceive the nations and to draw them together, to persecute and to eradicate the church of God. It is during this age that Jesus says, the gates of hell, the powers of darkness, Satan, the beast and the false prophet, they're around. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but the gates of hell will not prevail against my militant church. And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed to all the earth. That's this age. But at the end of the age, the beast will arise from the bottomless pit with power as never before to gather the nations for this one final attack upon the saints. So I think the time frame of Revelation 17, particularly from verse 8 onward, is primarily future, dealing with the end of the age which is near. I think the remainder of this section confirms this futuristic bent to Revelation 17. The angel tells John that the seven heads of the beast represent seven mountains on which the woman is seated. I think that's a reference to Rome, which was known as the city of the seven hills, situated on the seven hills. In John's day, Babylon was Rome, which is why she is seated on the seven mountains. But as we have seen, Rome was the final beast of Daniel chapter 7. So it also stands, Babylon, Rome also stands for all of the manifestations of the beast down to the end of the age. This is why the seven kings or kingdoms, also represented by the seven heads of the beast, 1710, of those seven, five have already come and gone in history. One is now and one climactic king and kingdom remains to come, John is establishing the time frame. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Beast after beast after beast after beast have come. One is now and one will come at the end of the age to arise with great power and ferocity. Furthermore, and this last one will be also with the beast who is an eighth one but also belongs to the seven. And their power will only be granted, it says, for a little while. Furthermore, the angel says that the ten kings or kingdoms who will hand their power and their authority over to the beast will with the beast make war on the lamb at the end of the age, but they have not yet received the royal power. Alright, what's going on here? Well, these, these numbers, seven and ten, are symbolic numbers that occur frequently in Revelation to denote the idea of completion. The idea is... All of the nations of the world will hand their authority over to the beast. They will join him in this unified aggression against the saints of God, against the church. They symbolize fullness of power, denoting completion. So the events of Revelation 17 and 18 concern the end of the age, and John sees himself as being on the precipice of that end. Just as every believer for the past 2,000 years, including us, has stood on the precipice of the end of the age, awaiting the imminent return of Christ. Second, dealing with the beast's power. What is clear from this passage is that at the end of the age, when the beast rises again from the bottomless pit, the power that he will wield will be immense and global, The ten horns symbolize ten kings, verses 12 and 13, who are to receive authority for one hour, that's the little while, the very end of the age, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. This is how, as we saw last week, all the nations of the world will turn in unison upon the church and will make war upon the saints of God. Now this isn't to assert that there will be some kind of one world government at the very end, though there very well may be, but rather that the satanic spirit that empowers and arises within these governments of the world will be united in their opposition and hostility toward the saints. But not only will the beast have the governments of the nation under his sway, he'll also have the citizens of those governments, the people. Verse 8, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. They will marvel at the beast's power. Third, as to the beast's demise, chapter 17 assures us that the beast and his global alliance will not succeed in destroying the lamb or his church. The true saints... That is, everyone whose name is written in the book of life will remain faithful unto death. How? The answer is there in verse 14. They are the called. They are the chosen. And they are the faithful. The electing grace of God assures their faithfulness. Their names were written in the book of life from before the foundations of the world. The blood of the Lamb secures their faithfulness. The book is called the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Meaning that Christ died to redeem, infallibly redeem, everyone whose name was written in the book from the foundations of the world. And the Holy Spirit guarantees their faithfulness. These are the ones who were called, effectually awakened from spiritual death to new life and faith, and they are being made new by the infallible sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. They are sealed. By the Spirit so that they do not succumb to the beast's power nor cower in fear before his threats. In other words, what verse 14 assures you is that all of the sovereign power of the Holy Trinity works together to ensure the salvation of the saints. They are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. And they belong to the Lamb who cannot be defeated because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The beast will fall. The final section of the chapter, as I said earlier, is rather surprising. The beast and his global alliance will turn on the prostitute and destroy her. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The angel's words regarding the prostitute reinforce our symbolic interpretation of this chapter. Babylon represents global civilization and culture throughout history. She is the great city. She is the worldwide city. She is every city because she is seated on many waters. And the last verse tells us what those many waters represent. They are the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, and the languages of the world. Now we know from earlier chapters that Babylon is destined to fall under the judgment of God. But what we didn't know until now is that God is going to use the beast to do it. Not only will the nations of the earth make war upon the saints, evidently they will make war upon themselves. If the beast and his alliance of kings stands for the evil power of the state, and the prostitute of Babylon stands for the ungodly, cultural, commercial, religious structures... Then, my best guess at interpreting these final four verses is this. At the end of the age, there will come heavy handed authoritarian state control, much like what we saw in the Soviet Union in the latter half of the last century. I want you to think back. Those of you who remembered, those of you who've read history books and seen pictures, remember what life was like. In the Eastern European countries that were part of the Soviet bloc. One of the hallmarks of that kind of authoritarian control is that culture, commerce, and religion are stamped out, stifled, and that people die in mass. The arts are banned. You can't can't create anything that doesn't glorify the state. Trade ceases. You get put in this assembly line just pumping out the things that the beast needs to propagate its war. And religion, even false religion, is stamped out. You begin to worship the state. You begin to worship the beast. Babylon will fall at the hands of the beast. Culture, human culture, fallen human culture will fall at the hands of beast. Of the satanic state. The beast will make her desolate and naked. And devour her flesh. And burn her up with fire. And this will be God's judgment upon all her abominations. And immoralities. And idolatries. What's the application? What do we take home? Well I'm going to suggest two. One from this chapter and one from the next. First, in verse 9, the angel tells John, this calls for a mind with wisdom. This vision and interpretation given by the angel to John and by John to us, the church, is given that we might consider it and have wisdom to discern its meaning. It was given that we might recognize Babylon for what she is, a dangerous and deceptive harlot. I want you to listen to me. We hear a lot about redeeming culture and a lot of talk, especially in the church, even in the church, about the value of all of these different cultures. And and there is a lot to commend about human culture, architecture and the arts, and human commerce, industry and trade. Our capacity, mankind's capacity to produce art... And beauty and trade and wealth is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But all too often, our fallen human nature has used that same capacity to produce abominations that feed into our greed and our depraved passions. There is a difference between beauty and blasphemy. There is a difference between art which stirs the emotions and stimulates the mind and the kind of crass entertainment that often passes for art which is little more than an outlet for our base passions and lusts. There's a difference between beauty and pornography. There's a difference between creating jobs through industry. And building bigger barns to hold all of our stuff while most of the world starves around us. There is a difference between reflecting the glory of God in what we make and building monuments to the glory of man. And the mind of wisdom knows the difference. And that's what Revelation 17 calls you to. Find Where Babylon is and recognize her. Second, verse 4 of chapter 18. We find a voice from heaven saying this. Come out from her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. That is the call of the sovereign God to you the saints this morning. That's your application. Come out of her. Lest you share in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. Come out of her. Now I hope that through our study this week and next, that it will become increasingly clear to you just what Babylon is, in order that you might come out from among her. It's a difficult question. We need to discuss it next week in our Connect Groups. What is Babylon? Where do we see it in what we watch, in what we do, in where we work? How do we dwell in Babylon without becoming Babylonian? We are exiles and pilgrims. Babylon is where we live. It is where we work. It is where we raise our families. What is called for in this text is not a geographic separation. The call is not for us to go and purchase some land outside of town somewhere, and build for ourselves a little holy commune, where we can be immune from all of the the diseases of the world. What is called for is to live as citizens of Zion in exile in Babylon. And this has application for the way that we work, the way that we live, the way that we worship, the way we raise our children, the way we spend our money, what we choose for entertainment. So what is called for in this message and the next one is not only a mind of wisdom, but a heart of separation. There is soon coming a day when to be a follower of Christ will mean you must resist the beast, the evil power of the state, even unto death. That day is coming and it is not far away. Here in America. But today, this afternoon, when you get home and turn on your television... And tomorrow, when you go to your workplace and clock in, you're going to be called to resist the harlot. Separate from her now, 1st Baptist Nixa, or you will fall with her later. My Father, as we close this service, I want to pray for your people who are here. I want to pray for ears to hear. I want to pray for a heart to respond. I want to pray for a mind to comprehend. And I want these words, when I say them at the end of this service, when I say amen in just a second, when I say them, I want them to be heard not just with our physical ears, but with our spiritual ears. And I want our hearts hearts to leap in response. Come out from among her, my people, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. That's the call to the church. So everyone here, whether they are by faith in Jesus Christ, the people of God, or whether they want to be the people of God, the message is the same. Come out and be different if you don't live differently now you won't live differently forever oh this is a call to holiness may it be heard by the saved and the as yet unsaved lord move in power i ask For the glory of your name. Amen.